Welcome back, storytellers. This is your host, Yin Chang. Before we get into introductions about today's episode featuring Sarah Zar, I want to share three things with you. There are some things in the works here at 88 Cups of Tea to bring our community together even more during this time, and I'll be sharing over the next several days and weeks about it. So please make sure you're signed up for our newsletter so you're not missing out on any of the announcements over at subscribepage.com slash 88 cups of tea. All right, first things first, I'd love for 88 cups of tea to support you however we're able to during this time. For one of those things, I just created a free self-guided accountability group for the entire month of April. If you're itching to create, this is the perfect group for you to join where you can lean on our community for accountability and support every single day and especially during the really tough days. Our storytellers are the warmest and most encouraging humans I have ever met, so I'm excited for you to experience that kind of support. To join, make sure you have a pen and paper to write this down. Head over to facebook.com slash groups slash 88 cups of tea self-guided accountability April 2020. And those are the numbers 2020. I know that was a lot, so let me repeat that again. It's facebook.com slash groups slash 88 cups of tea self-guided accountability April 2020. If anything about productivity or accountability is too much for you right now, this is not the group for you. Please focus on doing what you need to do to keep yourself feeling safe and I hope you take extra care in not overexerting yourself. I encourage you instead to look out for my upcoming hangouts that will focus on fun and light activities and chats in hopes of bringing you some joy. So for those, make sure you're subscribed to my newsletter for the announcements over at subscribepage.com slash 88 cups of tea. Now on to the second thing. Patreon has been so helpful in keeping our engine running here at 88 Cups of Tea. And up until April 30th, I would love to gift those of you outside of our Patreon membership immediate access to our live stream recordings featuring authors Mindy McGinnis and Shannon Messenger. Think of it as a gift from me and the Patreon family community. These live streams resonated with our patrons to the core, so I have a feeling it'll resonate with you too. I know times aren't the easiest for you right now, and I truly hope these playbacks will bring you some relief and moments of welcome distraction. To get access to these live stream playbacks right away, head over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash 88 cups of tea and click on the category up at the top called live stream conversation and look for Mindy McGinnis and Shannon Messenger's names and they're all set to public so you can view it at any time. Now the third and final thing, I'm thinking about documenting what we're collectively going through and how we're coping during this time. For 30 consecutive days, I envision recording exactly 15 minutes of conversation with rotating listeners of our podcast. So each Sunday evening in those 30 days, I plan to release an 88 Cups of Tea podcast weekend edition that features a raw, unedited compilation of all conversations from that full week prior in hopes these diary-like audio entries bring our listeners a sense of belonging. I imagine this as a virtual tapestry, weaving our voices together, our experiences, our stories, our hopes, fears, dreams, wishes, yearnings, real-time perspectives all sewn together into this time capsule. We already have a ton of listeners who submitted for this, and if you'd also love a shot at being one of these voices, 
head over to our bio link in our Instagram or Twitter at 88 Cups of Tea. All right, for today's new episode, we have award-winning author Sarah Zar, the acclaimed young adult author of Gem and Dixie, The Lucy Variations, Story of a Girl, and her upcoming novel, Goodbye from Nowhere. She's a National Book Award finalist and two-time Utah Book Award winner. Her novels have been variously named to annual best books lists of the American Library Association, Kirkus Reviews, Publishers Weekly, School Library Journal, The Guardian, the New York Public Library, and the Los Angeles Public Library, and have been translated into many languages. She's a McDowell Colony Fellow and has served as a judge for the National Book Awards. An important note to make, we recorded this conversation back in early March, so though we do not mention any timely events, Sarah's stories are timeless and inspiring. Sarah and I kick off our conversation discussing her courageous journey to becoming a full-time author and the importance of creating a life that supports your writing. We get into some real talk about how to financially support yourself and your writing career and how to sustain it long-term. We then dive into the importance of community and a support system to lean on as your career evolves. Further in, we chat about publishing deadlines and how to best make use of the low times during the publishing process to grow other projects or work other jobs to bring in more income. Sarah shares her experience shifting publishers and editors for her book, Gem and Dixie, and how she stopped herself from going down the path of bitterness and chose a gratitude mindset instead. We talk about how crucial it is to not compare yourself to other social media and ration your social media use. And later, we chat about her upcoming young adult novel, Goodbye from Nowhere, and her first nonfiction novel, Courageous Creativity. She shares the invaluable advice of removing expiration dates you've put on your own writing goals. And we wrap up our conversation discussing her writing process and the steps that help her get her writing flowing. Sarah created an exclusive writing prompt just for our 88 Cups of Tea community. So you can download that bonus content over on our show notes page at 88cupsoftea.com slash Sarah dash czar. Be sure to also catch her Instagram story where she shows us her adorable cat, Mr. Donut, and gives us a sneak peek about her book, Goodbye from Nowhere. All you have to do is head over to instagram.com slash 88cupsoftea and click on the Instagram stories. Now let's jump right in. I would love to start off with how you first fell in love with storytelling, the earliest memory possible. Mm, I was thinking about this last night because I was listening to some previous episodes and I knew you were going to ask. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I suspected. I thought you're probably going to ask. And I can tell you that my mother read aloud from fiction to me and my sister every night from my earliest memories. And she would do voices like she would read The Lord of the Rings, like she would do voices and accents or she would read All Creatures Great and Small, which I don't know if you're familiar with that series, but it's this memoir by this country vet from England. (laughs) So she would do all these accents. So just from the very beginning, always loved books and reading and being read to. But then I don't know how old I was but I have a visceral memory of singing in the rain being broadcast like on our PBS station and watching it. And I feel like in my memory, I was alone when I was watching it, which is possible because 
it was the seventies and <laughs> benign neglect was like a parenting style that was popular. Right. So I could have been all by myself, but that movie filled me with just so much happiness, the dancing and the singing and the story. And I just thought, this is great. Like I want to be a dancer or a singer or, you know, I didn't know that a writer was a thing. <laughs> so mm. I just, I knew there were books, but I was too young to put together like a person wrote this story. But I just always, I was very encouraged to play make-believe all the time. That was the favorite activity with me and my friends. Partly like I was a poor kid and so I didn't have a lot of toys, like sort of a variety of stuffed animals. And one of my best friends had parents who bought her all the toys. <laughs> but whenever we got together, whether it was at her house or my house, we'd never touched the toys. We just made stuff up. We were like, let's play orphanage. Let's play wagon train. Let's play school. And so I just think my imagination from very early on was very active and encouraged to be active. And it wasn't until probably my mid-20s where that translated to, I want to be an author. I was writing before that, but I didn't know that I could be an author because like an author had never visited my school. I didn't know any authors. The internet didn't exist. <laughs> it was just like, I there's books. And then I did not know about authors. And when I got older and realized like there are people writing these books and I want to go find more books by this particular author or whatever. I just thought to be an author, someone had to give you permission to do it or you had to live in New York City. Or you had to have some special, I don't know what. It was like to say I want to be an author was like, I want to be an astronaut. It's mm -hmm. just, it wasn't reality. And so it wasn't until when I was in my mid twenties and the internet happened and you could actually interact with other people who were writing and you know how powerful online communities are now. I mean, imagine in the mid 90s when they were brand new and it was just like, oh my God, like I can do this. So it was a very gradual evolution to actually going from that imaginative young person who loved all forms of storytelling to like focusing it in, like writing is something you know, I'm interested in music and I'm interested in movies and I'm interested in acting, but all that requires other people to cooperate with me mm. and let me do it. Mm. <laughs> Whereas writing was just like, all you have to do is give yourself permission and that's it. I do want to get into home life and how that either supported and or affected your slowly budding realization of wanting to be a writer. How was that like for you? Oh, Honestly, you could probably spend the rest of the podcast just on this topic. <laughs> and I'm and I'm glad that I I when I was setting up my little space to talk to you today, I put a box of Kleenex right in front of me. So if I cry, hey, that's fine. It's complicated. So both my parents were and are my my mother is still living and she still is a very creative person. She's a musician. Both my parents they met in music school. So they were both really into classical music performance. My dad was into conducting and choral music. So they both really valued the creative endeavor, you know, and the importance of art and beauty. Now, by the time 
I came along. Neither of them were doing their art in, I would say, well, I mean, I have this vague memory of still like going to a church choir thing and seeing my dad perform. I know he would like do conducting of small choirs and things, but he had kind of fallen a long way from where he started and where he wanted to be because he was an alcoholic and he was a severe alcoholic. And how we ended up in California was they started back East. And after after music school, my dad got different jobs teaching at music schools, but then kept getting fired and then going to another school and getting fired and just gradually moving and moving until they ended up in San Francisco, which was like as far West Mm. (laughs) as you could get without like falling off the continent, you know? (laughs) And so he was, you know, by the time I have memory, both my parents were struggling in day jobs that didn't pay very well and doing a, still doing a little bit of art and valuing that. My mom played cello and guitar. And, you know, like I said, my dad was still doing some choir conducting and things like that. But we were more living in survival mode. And so as I was growing up, neither my sister nor I got messages like, dream big. You can be anything you want to be. Try new things. Try hard things. Because my parents weren't coping with just the day-to-day challenges of being adults and raising kids and like making ends meet. And so we didn't discuss ambition. And ambition is still something I struggle with giving myself permission to have bigger ambitions. So when I started to write. Now I was already married. I got married when I was 19. Mm. I met my husband when I was 16. I got married when I was 19. So by the time I got serious about writing, I was already married for like five or six years. I was like an old married lady. (laughs) So my husband was and is and has always been, this is the part where I might cry, but I'm going to try and keep it together. Mm. So supportive, just super encouraging, super supportive. We met doing community theater. He was a drama teacher and he loves reading and now he's an English teacher. And he never for one second, even, you know, it took me about 10 years from when I decided to start pursuing writing seriously to when I first became published. And 10 years is a long time. Like now that I'm almost 50, it doesn't, I realize that 10 years is nothing. But Mm. when you're living it, 10 Mm -hmm. years is very long. And if you're looking at your writing life and going, oh, it's been three years and I haven't succeeded at anything. It's been five years. It's been seven years. Around seven years, I was just like, I don't know if I should keep doing this. But that all came from me. My husband never once suggested like, maybe like this is not going to happen and you should just give up so that you can focus on other things. So he's always been super supportive. It did take me a while when I started to like tell my parents that I was pursuing this and it was not good. I think they divorced when I was like 10. So this was, I barely had a relationship with my father, but I remember one, I remember reading aloud some pages to my mom. 
I remember sitting in my apartment in San Francisco and she was over and I was reading, I was like, mom, like I'm doing this writing thing. And just, you know, I read some pages aloud and she did not react with like, wow, that's great. Like, I'm so impressed. She just like, I think there's like a fear and shame thing that happens. She was also the kid of an alcoholic. So we have this whole like family tree of addiction and depression (laughs) and there's a lot of shame and fear that comes with all of that. And so I think it was shameful and fearful for her to, I think she was just scared because to say that you want something or that you might be good at something or to be proud of yourself was just like a very hard thing for everyone in my family. And so she didn't respond very well. She's super, you know, she's like my number one fan now. She's super supportive. But at that time, that first moment of like, oh gosh, like my daughter wants to do something that most people can't really do and doesn't sound that good to me. It was my first book. I wasn't a good writer yet. She was probably like, that doesn't sound like good writing (laughs) because it wasn't, you know? And then I remember also a little later telling my dad, talking on the phone. And I can't remember, I think I might've been like getting ready to teach a writing workshop. Even this is before I had been published, but I don't remember what the setting was, but he was kind of like, well, what do you know about writing? (laughs) And then later, so I was like, well, I know some things. Um, And then later, I think when I got my first agent, I might've told him about it. And his response was, and he may have been, it probably was drinking at this time. But his, his response on the phone was like, Oh, I don't think like if I ever saw a book by you on a shelf, I don't think I could stand it. What? Uh, like I'd be too jealous, you know? <gasps> yeah. <laughs> wow. I am. I'm at an age now where I don't blame my parents for this. I don't, right. I think there was just so much shame and fear in the concept of having desires and also their own sort of failed is perhaps too strong a word, but you know, my dad, he went from being a very well-regarded music professor and conductor to like working at a corner store. And so he had shame about that, you know? Yes. So it's just, it's complicated. It's really, really complicated. But I also know And I know this from talking to other friends who are writers who grew up with, you know, not very highly functional families, that there's a way that growing up in that kind of household where you have to do more like self-parenting. Yeah, you have to fight. Yeah, and you become... You can, I'm not, and and I'm not trying to frame this in like, this is ultimately a positive because I would have rather, it would have been better for me to have like functional, supportive parents when I was at a young age, but developing a rich inner life and Mm. books were a big part of that. And just like really enjoying my own company, creating an environment within my self that felt safe, using my imagination as a healthy escape. And also just sort of developing like, you know, anyone who has lived with a volatile personality, whether that comes from addiction or just problems with anger, you're 
prepared for a lot of different scenarios and you're a kid and you are just trying to like survive your life and it's all that you know, but you get used to like, okay, like if my dad comes home and he's drunk, like what's, how's this evening going to unfold and I'm going to be ready for X, Y, Z. Or if my dad is angry or if my parents are fighting or if no one's home, you know, just you sort of develop that habit of what if X, Y, Z different things happens. And that is a big part of storytelling of just Mm. imagining all different scenarios and how they might play out. Wow. And not everyone, again, like this is so much personality and some people really struggle to find any kind of resilience or interior safety in those environments. I don't at all want to make it sound like the great thing about having an alcoholic parent is because like I said, it's better to have functioning, emotionally mature parents, but my life was what it was. And I can see how all this played into why I was so taken with stories and my imagination. When we were pre-chatting before we started the actual part of the podcast episode interview, we talked about how you just got back from California. You're now back in Utah. And why are we living in different yeah, states? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Because I just find that so fascinating. And, and then also how you mentioned that also impacted the marriage. And then to see that you guys were able to work on something that also helps you flourish creatively. I just find it so inspiring. Those couples that really try to be proactive Mm -hmm. about making things work for themselves and not suffocating. It's very tied into just the practical realities of being a writer. A few years ago, my husband is a high school teacher and he's been a high school teacher the whole time we've been married. He started his first year of teaching the first year we were married. So 30 years. And any teachers out there listening know that is a hard ass job. (laughs) And when he was around year 26 or 27 of classroom teaching, he just kind of hit a wall. He hit like a big burnout wall. And I'm surprised it wasn't sooner because that, again, like it is a really, really hard job. And basically we, we were like, okay, I told him like, you need a year off. Let's make this work. So we sold place where we were living and bought a cheaper place so that we could have a lower like life overhead and just like shuffled some things around so that he could take a year off. And that through various circumstances that turned into two years off, which was not good (laughs) because just financially we were not ready for two years of that. But his many, many years of teaching and his burnout was such that it was like, he was not going to take a job, a teaching job, unless it was at, in an environment that he could see that was sustainable, you know? So not in a public school with 36 kids, for example, it had to be the right teaching environment. And he just wasn't finding that in his job search in Salt Lake City and around Salt Lake City in terms of what opportunities were available in the kinds of environments where he was willing to teach. And so uh, an opportunity came up in San Francisco, well, in Pacifica, which is outside San Francisco, which is where we met doing community theater and where 
I moved when I was like 12 when my mom remarried and we moved from San Francisco to Pacifica. It's just like 20 minutes away. Anyway, as you know, like San Francisco is like the most expensive. The Bay Area is the most expensive housing yes. market. Yes. So it was just kind of like, well, this is a great job. This is the perfect teaching environment for him, but we can't afford to live there. But my sister lives there. My husband's parents live there. His sister lives there. They've all lived there for a long time. And that's where we're all from. So we were like, well, let's just like take the job. We won't move. We have a space in his parents' house. We'll keep our place in Salt Lake and we'll just try this for a while because we didn't want to just completely pull up stakes to go back into the most expensive part of the country and then have like that job not pan out or any number of other things happen. If we were younger, it might be a different situation, but you know, he's 58. I'm almost 50. It just felt like let's keep our stability, but also take this job. So, and this goes back to the being supportive about the writing thing and, and making a life that supports your writing and how amazing it is to have a supportive partner. Because part of the thing is if we moved back there, I would absolutely have to like get a more or less full-time job besides writing to just make it work. And whereas if we do like we're doing now, then I can keep my self-employment as my primary and pretty much only means of income and have the physical and emotional energy to write my books. So that's what we're doing. We're on year two right now of this. We're coming toward the end of the second school year of doing this where he's in his our space at his parents' house. I go back and forth from here, our place in Salt Lake, to there. And when I'm there, as I mentioned when we were first chatting, when we got on the line, when I'm there, it's harder for me to like have a good writing routine. I've never been one of those writers who has fully trained myself to just like write anywhere and under any circumstance. So when I'm there, I kind of try and just do more like I'm engaging with family. I'm like engaging with enjoying what the city has to offer, going on lots of walks by the ocean, reading. And then I come here to Salt Lake is where I'm just like now like my life is working on my book. So, you know, I don't know how much longer we're going to do this. <laughs> my dream is to like have an amazing, huge breakout and just be able to support us with my writing. But that's very, you know, that's of course every writer's fantasy, but I live in reality. So, <laughs> but that's, you know, that's an example of thinking outside the box and just being like, first of all, we don't have kids that helps. <laughs> That was just a choice we made a long time ago. But we're just kind of like, you know, it's not people do this. Like my brother-in-law is a traveling nurse. And so my husband's sister works in real estate. She stays home. My brother-in-law will like maybe go on a traveling nurse assignment for like six or seven weeks and then come back for a period of time. People do this. And globally speaking, it's very common for people to migrate for work and for families to live in separate places so that money can be sent back to one place and people can stay where they need to stay to be with family. It's probably more common on a global scale than not. But in, in my sort of world of, I don't know, just 
white middle class writer type people, it feels weird to people. Like it's probably shocking to them. <laughs> yeah, they're like, "What are you doing? Like, is your marriage falling apart?" It's like, no, it's totally fine. We're like making exactly. choices to support the things we value because we're not willing to just like be miserable to just try and like make rent, you know? Yes. And so we're blessed and lucky yes. and privileged that my in-laws let us live with them. Yeah. And it's great too. Cause you know, both are, his parents are aging. My mom is aging. It's great to be closer to them. And it's just a season of life that we're in right now. Another factor is I don't want to be resentful. Like if, if I was like, all right, we're moving there for your job. Cause we moved here for his job. So if we're like, we're doing this big thing again for his job. And then, and then if I were miserable and just resenting him for it and being like, I came here for you and I do this for, you know, you just, you can't have that. So it's one of those like, and this is part of where the codependency recovery stuff has helped because it's just about taking responsibility for your own life and happiness. And, you know, when you're in a life partnership, you're also obviously considering the other person's life and happiness, but not to the point where you just are like, okay, I guess I'm going to always be the one that's following you or adjusting my life around yours. I also, I need him to work and be happy in a job because I need his health insurance. I need his paycheck. We're financially dependent on each other in the way almost all couples are. And so like, I'm really grateful for what he's doing. I know he would rather just be home. He'd rather us be together. He'd rather me be there a little more, but there's like the feminist side of me too. That's just like, you know what, you got to go make your work happen. And I have to stay here and make my work happen. And we'll see each other as often as we can. And I'm not going to get into a thing where I've like made a big change I don't really want to make yeah, because that's what he needs to do. Yes. So we try and be kind of egalitarian in that. And, and he's great. Like he's, he's a feminist. He's, he gets it. I think that's awesome. I think that's so cool. And it allows you to really produce your work. I do have to bring up just overall, you know, talking about your work and talking about creating and also talking about finances. I, if you were able to hear some of the previous episodes, I do love talking about finances because that's a real talk yeah. that we love to talk about here. And you mentioned that you were able to do the self-employment. Hello, creating. You're right. It takes, it's a lot of physical and emotional energy, a lot. And it's surprising how exhausting where your body even feels sore. And it's like, wait, but I didn't even work out. And like my next day, my back is hurting just from all the thinking. You know what I mean? So mm -hmm. was this something that you were able to do since day one in your relationship with your husband, even before marriage? Or was this something that you kind of had to work out what worked for you both? Yeah. First of all, we like every couple that I know, both my husband and I need to earn money to make ends meet. Neither one of us has ever been in a position to just not earn money. You know, my husband's a teacher. That is not a high paying. It should be a high paying profession. It is not. So I've always worked. I've worked since I was 16. My first like filing clerk job. But when I sold my first book, it was in a two book contract. And at the time I was working like 30 hours a week. 
as an administrative assistant, making like 10 or $11 an hour. So I wasn't on a career track. The only career track I ever wanted to be on was for writing. And so I always just kind of had jobs. So when I got my first book contract, I was like, okay, I'm quitting my job now <laughs> because, because I wasn't like, oh no, I need to like figure out how I'm going to make even like 50 or $60,000 in a year. Not at all. Cause I was working part-time hourly work. So it wasn't, it wasn't a high bar to like replace my income. Also the types of jobs I had, I was like, worst case scenario, I run out of money and get like another administrative assistant job. So I quit when I got my first contract. When my, when my agent told me not to do, he's like, I always tell my clients, like, don't quit their day jobs. And I'm like, oh, no, I'm quitting my day job. <laughs> and this was like 2006. This is a while ago. So I quit that job. And then I did run out of money. And I did, like, right when I was running out of money, someone called that I knew and was like, my admin is going on maternity leave for, like, eight weeks. Do you want to just have this job. I was like, yeah. So I worked a couple months and then I got like another book check. So I quit again. So I've always like kind of over the last 12 or 13 years, I've always kind of cobbled together a combination of book money, a little teaching money workshops here and there. I taught for an MFA program. During this period of time when my husband was on his second year of unemployment that was unplanned, <laughs> I got a gig doing writing like social media content for businesses. And that would take just like 20 or 30 hours a month. Nothing huge, but paid a nice rate that was helpful. I recently quit that, which felt really good, even though right now I'm waiting for my new contract to be executed. And, and this is a thing anyone listening who has dealt with publishing, it's just like, yay, I got a new two book deal. <laughs> and then like, I'm slowly going broke while I wait <laughs> for the contract to come through. So I'm in that right now. We're like, maybe I shouldn't have quit that business content job until I got my contract payment. But I did because that's how I am. But um, I love the realness. Yes. <laughs> so I've never been in a position where I like don't have to think about making money. The health insurance part is important because I'm a type one diabetic and I, it's an expensive disease. Insulin is extremely expensive. I have two very expensive pieces of medical equipment attached to my body. So the health insurance part is always, you know, not optional. And in this country, people make it sound like it's optional because we have no choice but for it to be optional sometimes, but it's an important piece for everybody. And it's a tangibly important ongoing piece for me. So I definitely could not do this without my husband having a job that had benefits. We did for a while when he quit, we did COBRA, which is how you can like extend your employer health insurance for like 18 months after you've left the job. Oh, wow. But that was like, $750 a month. <laughs> so it's just like, I don't know. Anyway, when we did our taxes that year, I was like, well, no wonder we're broke. You know, we've both always had to work and I, I don't anticipate there ever being a time where we don't have to both work and like be concerned about making ends meet. And it 
always feels a little bit, and, and I grew up poor, so this is hard for me. Like I really, I have this fantasy that having enough money will like solve everything. And it's annoying to me when people who do have a lot of money are like, it doesn't fix problems. Like, well, it fixes the problem of not having money. It fixes survival. Okay. So yes, let's be real about that. Anyway. So I've always worked. And so, yeah, since that first quitting my job in 2006, I've never gone back to like a full-time day job. And I've, I've always trying to make it work where it's things I can do from anywhere with a flexible schedule. Yes. And that's ideal. So I've been lucky things have come through when I need them. There's been times where you're just like, Ooh, I don't know what's happening. And that's sort of the gap that I, while I was working on my recovery stuff and just like dealing with all the childhood trauma, just, you know, needing to be dealt with. Mm-hmm. There was this gap in my, in my publishing career that I'm still trying to catch up from in terms of cash flow mm. and and sales momentum and like all of the things because it's so much about momentum and being fresh and being new and you know the market always wants novelty you know you know from acting like yes maybe that profession more than any values like the young new thing over mm-hmm. the profession around for a while and that's you know it's true in writing too it's it's true in all sorts of businesses and so trying to stay relevant and keep people in my books and keep, you know, my own career going. It's never a guarantee. It's never a sure thing. So I'm always grateful for every opportunity, contract or interest that comes my way because it's just not a given. And that's something you don't think about when you're starting out because you're just like, let me just get over this hump of getting my first book published. Mm. And then when you, when you're sort of in it and and like, it's your life, then you realize how difficult it is to sustain the sustainability becomes, you know, you just think you're never, (laughs) it's one of those things that when you're you're starting out, like, I just want one book published and then I'll be happy and I'll never want anything again. And you're like, I just want two books published. And then (laughs) like, then I'll be good. And I can check that off and I'll feel validated. Then you're like, well, if I can get like if I could be like Sarah Dessen and get 20 books published, then like, I'm going to feel good about myself. And you just, you know, the bar is always moving and the target's always moving. And the thing you think is going to make you feel finished and happy doesn't. And it's a journey. <laughs> yeah, It's a journey. And I think as you get older, there is just that extra challenge of like, I'm not the new thing. Everyone's all excited about anymore. I have different kinds of experience and wisdom to offer, but the marketplace always wants novelty mm-hmm. and things are always changing and you have to be adaptable while still being true to who you are as an artist and your voice and what you're interested in. And all of that, you know, the people I admire the most now at this stage of my career are just people I look at and go like, wow, like they've been doing this for 40 years mm-hmm. or they've been doing this for 20 years they're still publishing after X number of years. Like, I just think that's amazing. It doesn't have to be like big, splashy, glamorous careers that like excite me. It's like the people who are there 20, 30, 40 years later and just in the day to day of I'm a writer, this is what I do and getting past the initial sort of 
it's fun to be famous Mm -hmm. (laughs) and just, you know, like, well, why am I, you know, why am I really doing this? And moving into different stages with that. Do you have people that you're leaning on throughout this time and almost like a transition throughout your, it is a transition throughout your growing, evolving career? Because I always hear how published authors, they really rely on their community, you know, whether it's their chosen Mm -hmm. writing buddies or their agents and editors, because it sounds honestly fucking scary because it's like (laughs) the woods and there's no path that's created if i were in your shoes i'd be like fucking hacking away blindly like you might as well give me a blindfold you know i'm just like (laughs) i hope i'm not gonna fall off a cliff right now so it can um, feel that way sometimes yeah yeah it's scary especially because there's fewer and fewer of those people who do have longevity in this career like you were mentioning the ones who are doing Mm -hmm. this for 40 years so it's like holy shit, the further you're along, it gets scarier with the pressure. Like, who else can I look to for an example that this can be done? You know, like, who can I lean on for resources? It is hard. One of the things that I've encountered in the last five or six years a lot is just feeling like, I don't, when I started out, it was easy to find mentors because everybody was farther along than I was. Exactly. But as you like are hanging in there, (laughs) And people are dropping out or, you know, moving on or just changing. There's fewer mentors Mm -hmm. because sometimes when you're like mid-career like I am, I... It could be the end of my career, but I like prefer to think of it as mid-career. <laughs> we'll say mid-career, okay? It's not the beginning, let's put it that way. Of just like, you know, people don't see you as needing... People more are looking to you for advice and encouragement, which is great. And I love to be that person. But I also just sometimes feel like, who am I going to like go talk to about the issues I'm having with my writing or my career? I'm very close to with my agent. Mm. I've been with him the whole time. And I had an agent previously, but she never sold a book. That was like in the nineties, a long time ago. Okay. So basically this agent. Yeah. Well, for my published career, I've been with my agent. And when I was starting out, he was like a junior agent just building his list. And now he's the vice president of the company. So we've grown into our careers together. And he's someone I rely on a lot. I have some writer friends that I've known since the very beginning. And we may not like see each other regularly or chat every day, but I can pick up the phone and call And I know like they're going to be there. And then I have two sort of daily, I have one like email chain of like nine people that I'm on that I've been on for like, I don't know, like nine or 10 years now. And then I have uh, more recently, I have another like eight people, a different set of people that I'm on a Slack channel with and we talk every day. And so because I'm not in an office seeing people It's just sort of the daily grind of just telling someone, oh, I did like 800 words this morning. I'm trying to do 500 more or just like, did you see this article? And I think it's important and really useful to have the closed groups. Like you said, you have this private Facebook group for your 88 Cups community. For the listeners. Yeah. Because I think we can tend to say those things like on Twitter or Instagram which is, that's okay, but you also have to remember those are public forums, even if it feels private because it's just you and your group of followers and people you follow, it can feel private. But then you remember, this is public. And like, do I want to be this 
vulnerable in this way in public? Or do I want to be this petty? What you really need is some someone for the pettiness. <laughs> you need trusted friends in the business. You can be your worst, pettiest, most resentful, envious <laughs> self with because you don't want to be that person on Twitter. Trust me. Yes. Real talk. Be it in private <laughs> with a trusted handful of friends where you can just say like, I need to be petty right now and please listen to what I'm saying. And then just to have them affirm you and then you can move on and let it go. Yeah. Having a trusted private group is important. And I think these days it's just rare people just like say everything on their public forums. And I just don't recommend that. Yes. <laughs> I think you can be authentic and vulnerable and be your real self, but also like there's a limit. You have to like draw a line and be like, I'm telling you on the podcast, but I'm not going to go on Twitter right now and be like, oh, I wish I can't believe I've been waiting like this long for my book contract. Like, don't do that. You know, <laughs> probably shame your publisher for being slow with contracts. <laughs> Hopefully by the time this podcast comes out, I will have gotten my contract. <laughs> But you know what I'm saying? You gotta have like your daily posse and like your go-to, like your ride or die people who can just, you may not talk, you could go a year without talking to them. And then you can like text them out of the blue and be like, I'm struggling with X and know like they're the person that is going to get it. Mm, My gosh, that is so freaking helpful and insightful, Sarah. You have no idea. Being 50 will get you, baby. You get insights. (laughs) (laughs) You earned it. Okay. So you mentioned about publishers where you don't want to shame your publishers. It's interesting because I know, I think the more conversations I have, the more I realize it's obviously not like Disney World where everything Peers, like, wow, everything is perfect. Everybody's happy. Everybody agrees. So, having such longevity in your career, deadlines, if you can't make it, I mean, have you ever had that issue? And if you did, were you ever feeling comfortable to be like, listen, we need to push this another few months because I cannot, I cannot, or I will literally have a mental breakdown? Yeah. Every editor I've worked with has been really great. It's really not as big a problem as people might think it is. Pushing a deadline only becomes a problem if you're like, your book's in the catalog for a certain season because you haven't been able to tell your editor that it's not (laughs) coming along. And then like you let it get to the point where it's like in the fall catalog and you're like, it's actually not going to be ready for another year. That's pain for publishers and a problem. But until that point, there's a fair amount of flexibility. You know, unless you're writing a series, that's a different thing. I've never written a series, but I know that that's different where you really do want to keep to a certain schedule. But for the most part, and for the kinds of books I write, I think publishers know, like, I'm not going to be selling gangbusters, but it's about quality work that's going to be hopefully respected in the marketplace and will satisfy my readers. So like rushing me is not going to help anybody. (laughs) So I have never had a problem with that sort of thing. Now I did have a instance where I bought a book back from a publisher and changed publishers. And that was Oh, like 2013, 2014, it all happened right in the middle of all the personal stuff. And they weren't, those things were not unrelated. You know, I think 
to a certain point, I hadn't been paying enough attention to my career because I was very wrapped up in what was going on in my personal life. And I paid for that, you know, and that was part of what created like the gap. But it was just a matter of just various things. I I almost don't even remember the key issues right now. And sometimes I wonder like, well, did we make the right decision there? I don't know. But the bigger problem I've had with deadlines and publishing is that all my editors that I've ever had have been overworked and it's hard for them to meet their own deadlines. So that's just one of those things where it's important to know what you're going to do with yourself while you're waiting because you are going to wait. And what are you going to do with that time? Are you going to go like get creatively renewed and like consume a lot of art and take a lot of walks and just like hang out? Or are you going to start a new project? Because the one thing you can't do is like sit around toggling between social media apps and compulsively checking your email. That's not going to get you anywhere good. And so the waiting, I think for people that are maybe starting out or getting their first contract or in their first few years, if I could go back and change anything about the beginning of my career, it would be like being more proactive during the waiting times, whether that's working on a new project or just filling the well, or even like when I think about it financially, like that would have been a great time to go like get a temporary job. I don't know, like make a little money while I'm just waiting for my editor to get back to me. (laughs) So there's just, you know, ways that you work around the inherent issues with overworked editors and understaffed publishers, the vagaries of the marketplace, all that stuff. Oh my gosh. I could see your show notes being like five pages long. This is amazing. (laughs) You know, when you were talking about like that being a great time to also fill the financial well as well, that actually brought me back to a question I actually wanted to ask you and I completely forgot when you mentioned you did a gig um, that you just recently Mm -hmm. were able to leave the writing social media for this business 20, 30 hours a month. Did you find that through one of those online websites? No, it was a friend, another writer actually, who had gone to college with the person who owned the company. And this writer friend had done that content writing job Mm -hmm. a while ago. And The company contacted her and was like, do you want to do this again? She said no, but she knew that I was broke. So she gave them my name. And the funny thing is, like, when I quit that job, now she was broke again. And now she's doing it again. So it's like this money baton. We're just like passing back. How kind and thoughtful and generous of you both to look out for each other like that. That's yeah. Only if any everyone can have someone in their corner like that financially. That's just amazing. Yes. And she's someone who's on that like Slack group who just like knows, you know, she's not like my best friend or anything, but she knows the day to day and I know the day to day of what's going on in each other's lives. And so when an opportunity came up, she's like, I know someone who could do that and would like to do it right now. Here's her name. If there was one specific moment that you can remember that was the most difficult challenging, or it could be heartbreaking. You know, it doesn't have to be writing related because we've just been talking about life, which also does have to do so much with our lives as storytellers. It affects the way we tell stories. It affects how we come up with stories. I feel like you've gone through 
so much that you've shared, but if there is one specific pinpoint that you could bring us through and how you were able to, in a way, pick yourself up and get out of that situation or move past that. Oh, it's hard because my issues are uh, one of the things that happens with my reaction to my particular childhood trauma. It's just the thing where you are dissociated in the moment from what you're experiencing and you don't maybe realize it till like a year later. You go, oh, that was really hard. (laughs) I think career wise, the hardest thing was probably that publisher change that I made 2013, I guess it was, because I had been with one publisher for my first five books and was getting ready to do a sixth with them. And just a series of things happened. Like my, my first editor of my first four books had left. And then my editor of my fifth book had left. And they didn't just like necessarily, it's not like they're like editors at other publishers now. They sort of like left, they burnt out in their own ways and just sort of left the business, (laughs) which seemed like not a great sign for that particular company. Like, why do people keep leaving? And so I was on like my third editor there, who was a person I really respect and like, but like we weren't a great fit in terms of working on the book. And it was a really personal book to me. This was my book called Gem and Dixie, which is about sisters who have an alcoholic father. And I felt like with this book, I needed a certain kind of editorial handholding. It was just difficult. And so that was a time where I felt like, is this an exciting new beginning or did I just fuck my career? Mm. <laughs> and that was just like one of those times where it was like, I'm I'm going to rely on my agent right now because I'm not, I have a lot going on in my life and I'm not, I don't feel that capable of making decisions. And so, you know, I just let him guide me through that and ended up working with an editor who's still my editor now, really like I meld with on an editorial front. But there's more to a publishing career than like the editor that you're working with. You know, there's a lot of consequences to leaving a publisher. You know, your backlist is with the old place and you just wonder like, did I burn bridges? Mm. What are the connections that this publisher had that my new one doesn't or vice versa? There's always a lot to consider that in the moment you maybe are not thinking of every single point because you can't foresee what's going to be happening in the coming years. And that was just a time where I also was dealing with feeling bitter. And I think anyone who's been in the business for a while will recognize when the blush is off the rose, you know, and you're kind of like, you're like, oh, this is not Disneyland. Like you said, you know, this is, Mm -hmm. I've seen the underbelly now and it's really complicated and there's difficult aspects to it. That is a time, and and if this happens to coincide when you're hitting midlife, which it was for me, that's a time when you're just in danger of, you could go the bitterness and resentment route or not. And I felt myself going down the bitterness, resentment path, just feeling like uh, entitled. You start to feel entitled. You just go, don't they know who I am? Mm. I'm Sarah Czar, you know, and you Mm -hmm. just go, wait, wait a minute, like slow your roll, Sarah. Like 
you're just another person. Writers aren't better people than other people. You know, published writers aren't better people than unpublished writers. A writer that's been around and gotten good reviews is not a better person than a writer who's like new and is getting different kinds of attention. Like there's just that danger if you don't check yourself of going down the Everything I used to be really grateful for, now I feel entitled to. Everything that used to be really fun and I could feel excitement and be supportive, now I'm just like wondering what it's, these other people are taking away from me. Mm. You start to get a scarcity mindset yeah. and like a envy, creative envy, professional envy. If you start to feel forgotten or you start to feel unappreciated, you, you go wait a minute, like, what about me? <laughs> and this is just not a good place to create from. It's not a good place to live from. So all that was happening kind of at once. I had like career stuff happening, personal stuff happening, midlife stuff happening. And that was just like the hardest time. It just felt, I would just be awake at 3am just being like, what is happening with my life. And I'm really grateful to be through that and reach a place where I'm grateful again. I don't feel entitled to my career. I feel lucky that I have a career. I feel grateful for the people that I meet. I feel excited about things. When I see people get the kinds of successes that I would like to have, I feel, oh, that's great for them. And that's something you have to kind of continually work at so that you don't slip into the, I don't know, just that feeling of like, I earned this and I'm entitled to it. Damn it. <laughs> Cause none of that is true. It's all, even the best writers, there's been a little bit of luck or a lot of luck along the way to actually get them into publishing. So there's just a gratitude point of view that is helpful. This is a feeling I've definitely come across reading in our group. And even from those who have not had anything published yet, definitely from a fear scarcity viewpoint, um, which is how those feelings, of course, usually come about. So how did you proactively come to realization that you're like, I'm going to choose a gratitude mindset to get me back on that track in a way? It's a lot of different things. The Recovery work on codependency stuff was a, was actually a big part of it because oh, okay. I realized in that process that I had hinged my entire sense of self-worth on my writing career. And so, which I didn't know that I was doing that because for like seven or eight years, my career was all positive. It was all all good news all the time is a st stretching it, but it was good. I had a good positive career start. And so it happened without me realizing it. And you don't realize it until it gets challenged or taken away from you. So when I felt my name recognition or my readership or my popularity or my sales slipping, then I was like, oh no, <laughs> I just realized that my whole identity has been wrapped up in this and now it might be taken away. And then who am I? That's like a very sobering moment. So it's like, oh, I need to know that I have value, that my existence has value. My life has value. I'm a worthwhile person, even if all of the publishing stuff got taken away. And that's, it's not like something I've conquered. I'm not that evolved of a person. I'm still, still very important to me. I still feel very identified with my writing career, but not nearly to the point I was. And I have just a stronger sense of 
self-love and self-worth that is not dependent on other people's opinions of me. And that's sort of the heart of the codependency issues. Another thing that happened was like, I could see it happening to other people. Like if you spend enough time on Twitter, you know, those writers who you can just tell like, wow, like they're bitter. (laughs) Mm. And you go like, that's not attractive to me. Like, I don't want to be that. That seems like a unpleasant way to experience life. And I don't want that. And I can see myself going there. So I need to stop that. And I think just gratitude is a big part of it. And just like not spending too much time in that. The thing about social media, which can be so great and so connecting is the comparison. Mm. There's a great quote. I don't remember who originally said it, but that comparison is the thief of joy. It's a hard place to be. I know, especially if you're like right now and you're starting out and you keep hearing like, you need to have a platform, you need to like build your connections. So you feel like, and to an extent, rightly, that part of your job as an aspiring writer or a beginning writer or someone in their first couple years of their career is to like be online and be connected and be interactive. That's true to an extent, but it's also like it can turn so quickly to where you're just, I'm just going to go on and like talk about something interesting and interact with people. And then 15 minutes later, you're like, oh God, like everybody's getting a book contract except for me. <laughs> and and you just lose all sense of reality because you're in this weird echo chamber of publishing. And it's like, everybody's published. Everybody has a movie deal. Everybody's a New York Times bestseller. What's happening? And until you like turn that off and just go back to life in the offline world, you'll just forget that not everyone you meet walking down the street is a New York Times bestseller the way it can feel like is true on social media. Gosh. So you sort of have to you know, ration your social media use, I think. Yes. Okay. That is really solid life advice overall. What is exciting you the most about your work? I mean, I know you've got something coming out called Goodbye from Nowhere, April 2020. I'm, I'm excited about a lot of things. I'm excited about that book. It was super challenging to write, but in an interesting way to me, it started out as like nine or 10 points of views. And then it went down to one and it was an interesting editorial process. I'm also excited in the fall. I have my first nonfiction book coming out and it is creativity. It's called courageous creativity and it's aimed for young readers. It's kind of like if you were going to recommend like the artist way or bird by bird or something, but like for a sixth grader, it's that kind of a book with just a small publisher. And that's been really fun. We're starting to look at the interior design and that's exciting to me. I think older readers will like it too. It's just, it's published for younger readers, but I think it's the kind of book a lot of ages could get out of it. And I'm writing a middle grade novel right now. That's going to be my next book with my publisher. And that's new for me. And that's very exciting because there's just things you can do with middle grade that are different from YA or different adults. So I'm just excited that even at the ancient age of 50 that I shall be turning in October, (laughs) which I say that tongue in cheek because it's not that old. Exactly. Yeah. I want to say this too. I know this is slightly off the topic, but I just want to share that when I started writing, I was like, 25 when I got serious about like, I want to finish something and get it published. I said to myself, I will be published by the time I'm 30. 
Like that is my goal. I don't know why I picked that arbitrary age, but I just kept saying that. And then I wasn't, and then I wasn't, and I wasn't, and I wasn't, and I was 37 when my first book came out. And now I just think 37 is still so young, but I know like for anyone out there who's just like, there's an expiration date on my writing goals. There is not, (laughs) there's only so much you can control. And like, things are going to happen in the time that they happen in. You can only do your part showing up, engaging with the work, having good habits, being yourself beyond that. There's not a ton of control and it's going to take however long it takes. And it's fine to have a goal and set deadlines for yourself, but you also just need to recognize those are arbitrary things. Saying 30 is a landmark or 40 is a landmark or 50 is a landmark. It's just like an arbitrary way that we like round numbers, (laughs) but it's meaningless. Thank you for that, by the way. Thank you. Because I was going through that myself. So I appreciate that. Thank you. It's hard. Yeah, it's hard to minimize like the pain or frustration of that sense of time passing because I know that's real. Yes. But anyway, just being at the age that I'm at and feeling like there's still new stuff that I'm going to get to do and that I'm excited about. And I'm grateful again, back to the gratitude that publishers still want to work with me and people think I still have something to say. And I hope to just keep that going as long as I can. Sarah, why are you so cool? Oh my gosh. (laughs) Can I squeeze in the rapid fire questions that we kind of started to throw in towards the later half of these episodes? Awesome. So we, I'm so happy we got to really do a deep dive on the money talk. So that was actually one of the rapid fire questions, but you gave me the honor of actually really having a full discussion. So thank you for that. Oh, good. (laughs) What is the best advice you have ever received? It could be about writing or about life in general. And if you were a mentor Imagine that being the advice you'd share with your mentees. Oh my God. (laughs) So much pressure. Even after listening to several episodes, I foolishly was not prepared (laughs) because I'm very bad with like best, anything that's like best or favorites. Okay. Here's, here's mine. The answer is in the work. And by that, I mean, if you're struggling with solving a problem in your story, reread everything that you have and every note you've ever taken and reread it and reread it because the answer is probably in there. So I mean it quite literally, like the answer is in the work. And I also (laughs) mean it metaphorically, like if you are like, I don't know if I should be a writer. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what's happening with my career. I don't feel good about myself. That answer is in the work too. If you sit down and set a timer for 15 minutes and just commit to just 15 minutes, By the end of that 15 minutes, you're not going to have all those questions. Mm. I mean, that's not a guarantee. (laughs) You might still have some of those questions, but a lot of the the angst is going to go away by just doing it. The anticipation of doing something is, is harder than just doing it. So the answer is in doing the work and engaging with the work. Okay, next one. What are small manageable steps you'd advise writers to take every week towards accomplishing their goals? The timer is really useful. When If you're struggling with procrastination or self-doubt or anything, I just find the timer trick that I just described of 15 minutes is very powerful because you're giving yourself permission to stop thinking about it and stop waffling. And if you do that, say three times a week for 15 minutes, 
I almost can guarantee you, you're going to end up writing for more like a half hour or an hour if you have that amount of time. And that's going to be three hours of writing over the course of a week that you were otherwise just procrastinating. I have a lot of issues with procrastination, so I just have to get over myself. So, I mean, I think the small steps every week are staying connected with whatever your project is. And that might mean just spending 15 minutes reading over what you already have. It might be 15 minutes free writing on some aspect of it. Mm. But if you, if you can find 15 minutes, three times a week, like I said, I can almost guarantee you that time is going to magically grow while you're doing it. So good. Okay. I'm going to throw this one because I haven't actually touched on this or asked this question in like, I think years, I can't even remember, but your day-to-day of your writing setup, anything like that, that actually gets you super pumped and you're just flowing with creativity. Honestly, the the most important step of the whole process is opening the document and looking at it. Yes, okay. <laughs> Which can be yeah. surprisingly like you could spend days just avoiding yes. opening a document. I like to have music. I like to have my waters. I like room temperature, flat water. I like cold, bubbly water. In the morning, I like coffee. In the afternoon, sometimes I like like a nice cup of genmai cha. Yes. Some nice tea with toasted rice. I love that stuff. I recently got like a bigger monitor to connect my laptop to, and that's been great. It's like, ooh, all this screen real estate. <laughs> I don't have a lot of little – it doesn't need to be a certain time of day. I just – If before I go to bed, I can do like a thousand words on whatever my main project is, I am so happy with myself. If I can do more with more than that, that's great. But if like Monday through Friday, I can do a thousand words, that's amazing. Mm. I strive for consistency because I know that is how things accumulate. But yeah, I like music. I like to be comfortable. I like to be showered. Like I know there's... (laughs) There's always like writers online talking about like, oh, I'm a writer. Like I haven't showered in three days. I'm like, I have to get up and get showered and dressed. Otherwise I don't feel real. (laughs) So I need to be like in clothes and pants. Writers don't need pants. I'm like, I need pants. (laughs) I like to be clean and in clothing, just like I'm at a job, not as nice, you know, not, not like nice professional clothing, but clean, laundered clothing and a washed body and hair. That's what like gets me in the morning. For you, is there any specific type of music? Because I know there's a lot of listeners who love putting music on in the background. And they always ask me what kind of music. I'm like, I honestly can't tell you. It's like the most random stuff or I'll just have complete silence. Yeah. I think for writing, I love music. If I had to give up every other art form to consume and could only choose one. Yeah. It would be music. Um, I love music. And so I love listening to and discovering new music. But when I'm writing, it has to be something very familiar because I don't want to be thinking about like, oh, what's this song? Oh, who's this artist? It just has to be something. It's almost like a Pavlovian. Like if I put on this playlist of songs that I've listened to a bazillion times, I can get into a writing mode very easily. Yes. It's the familiarity is helpful. Or sometimes I'll just put on like some gentle classical music if I'm tired of my singer-songwriter yes. playlists. Yes. But yeah, as long as it's familiar and not too dancey because I will just want to dance. Yes. Like I was listening <laughs> yesterday. I was like, oh, I think I'll listen to some Prince while I'm writing. I was like, no, because I'm just standing up 
dancing. So yeah, just something familiar that can just kind of lull me into more of a hypnotic state is good. I love that. All right. That was so helpful. (laughs) Sarah, thank you so much for your time. Please let everybody know any favorite books, craft books or novels or memoirs that really impacted or influenced your writing. Yeah. I think the, the writing book that I return to again and again the most is an oldie, but a goodie. It was written, I think, like in 1936 originally, but it is called Becoming a Writer by Dorothea Brand. And it's just great. It's just full of practical advice and psychological insight, writing tips and tools. And and it's kind of awesome to be like, this was written almost a hundred years ago and writing has not changed that much. Oh yeah. (laughs) Just like the difficulties writers face. So I love that book. Yeah. I think that's my recommendation. I'm always like, again, with favorites and stuff, I'm, I'm usually just onto the next thing that I'm enjoying. I don't tend to revisit fiction a lot. I don't tend to rewatch movies a lot because there's so many things I want to read and and watch. I want to use that time to consume new things. But Becoming a Writer, Dorothea Brand, highly recommended. We usually have authors provide writing prompts as a downloadable bonus that's really exciting for their show oh, yes. notes page. Yeah, yeah. And you gave a really cool thing and I loved it. It was a memory exercise. I was like, yes, I'm going to do this now. So thank you for providing that and taking the time yes. to do that because Good. I hope people enjoy that. I mean, this was like paragraphs on paragraphs. I'm like, oh my God, Sarah has so much heart. I'm like, I, I, I know I'm going to love talking to this person. <laughs> I asked my publicist, I was like, do you think this is too long? And she didn't reply. So That's so generous. I'm like, how did she take the time to do this? Like most prompts are like one quick paragraph or like a few sentences. I'm like, Really? Like how lucky are we that you took the time to actually write all this for our community? So seriously, I just need to put out there, thank you so much for this. And listeners listening in, make sure you check it out and download this, that Sarah took the time to write this. And it's a brilliant memory exercise that she does for herself. And it really, I read through it and I'm like, oh, I'm going to do this for myself with what I'm working on. So thank you again, Sarah. And please let everyone know where to find you on social media. I am at Sarazar Books on Twitter and Instagram. And I'm also at Sarazar Books on a Facebook page, but I rarely go to Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> and just Sarazar.com. And that's Sarah with no H and it's Zar with two R's. And yeah, I'm pretty easy to find. I'm 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 not a hermit in terms of being <laughs> so it's not too hard to track me down. Awesome. Oh my gosh. Well, thank you so much, Sarah. Well, thank you, Yen. This has been so fun. And that wraps up my conversation with Sarah Zar. Sarah, thank you so much for such an insightful and powerful conversation. I so enjoyed having you on the show. Storytellers, thank you for hanging out and listening in. As always, please be sure to stop by and say hi to Sarah on Twitter at Sarah Zar Books. To download her writing prompt and to find all the resources and books mentioned in her episode, along with tweetable quotes and the timestamps of highlights throughout our entire conversation, head on over to Sarah's show notes page at 88cupsofteacom slash Sarah Zar. 
To keep up with all things 88 Cups of Tea, this one is for you Instagram lovers. Make sure you are following us on Instagram at 88 Cups of Tea. We love posting fun Instagram stories, announcing new podcast episodes and featured articles and essays, along with favorite quotes from our content. And my favorite part about Instagram is our story takeovers from some of your favorite guests that have been on the show, just like Sarah Zar. So make sure to head over to Instagram.com slash 88 cups of tea to join in on the fun. Have a super productive week and I'll catch you not next Thursday, but the one after that.